Go ahead, Ray. You! You worthless piece of slime! You ignorant, disgusting clown! Nothing but an unstable short chain molecule! It's the stuff. It's like pure concentrated evil. It's all flowing right to this spot. Material Devolution has begun. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's the return of the Material Devolution podcast. It's another beautiful day in San Diego. How's it going, Matt Walter? It's going great, Devin. I had a great day today. Got out, saw the ocean a little bit, some yoga, some bicycles. Man, it was awesome. That's a, a beautiful day. thing. It's yeah. a beautiful thing. I did a little uh, float tank this morning, sensory deprivation chamber. Got deep. It's a trippy experience. If you haven't tried it, ladies and gentlemen, I highly recommend it. So uh, I had some time to get a little deep. I didn't think about today's topic, but I cleared my brain. So uh, let's just discuss the story a little, Matt, and we'll kind of see where we want to go with this because this has been trending so much in the news. Uh, we don't really need to go too into the specifics, I'd say. We could just talk about the broader story as a little refresher, don't you think? I think so. Uh, so we're talking about Michael Slager, uh, the officer in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, his uh, shooting of Walter Scott on Saturday, April 4th. Uh, as uh, Scott was running away from him, as it was found out from the video uh, of a uh, civilian bystander. Yeah, very, uh, very troubling incident, and uh, it's fitting to demonstrate how commonplace this is. When my brother asked me what our topic was going to be, I mentioned it had to do with, uh, you know, uh, an officer shooting a black man, and he said, which one? And he wasn't joking. Like it's become so commonplace, like, well, what shooting? Which, which incident wasn't? So, obviously, this is a troubling trend, but what makes this case unique is a few different things. Uh, first, I'd say, is that it's the first time there's actually been evidence, video evidence, of this happening. When there was incidents before, like uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, with the Michael Brown incident, where they claimed he'd been running away, but some people said he'd been running at the officer. There wasn't video footage, so it was, you know, he said, she said type situation. This is the first case where there was video footage, and because of that, the department immediately fired him, charged him with murder. Normally, they close ranks and protect the person at all costs. So this seems like an interesting case where it's like, if there is video evidence, that's the one situation now where they're like, okay, we're not going to close ranks. Do you think that's what it takes to, to really keep people in check at this stage is that there must be video evidence, there must be body cameras, Matt? Unfortunately, I think we've gotten to that point, yeah. I think we've gotten to that point. And I think that what happened in the days that followed the shooting before this video surfaced um, and the way that the police and the lawyers came together and uh, concocted and then distributed the story uh, through the media uh, shows that uh, in order to expose these type of situations, body cameras are a necessity, and it has been shown that it has lowered, uh, you know, police brutality and claims of that as well to the police departments, which to me seems like a great thing also because it's, it's limiting uh, the uh, nefarious, I mean, or negative um, false claims against police officers also. Yeah, it should be good for both sides. So it's neutral. Transparency is good for both sides. It really is. What's interesting though is they had body cameras, uh, not for everyone. I think they, I read they had like a hundred, and then they said they're ordering 150 more to make sure now every officer had one. Right. But the video taken wasn't from you know the officer squad car, and if there was a body cam, 
you know the story could could have malfunctioned this happened in the struggle etc etc right. it was ultimately somebody on the streets mobile phone video that well, exposed this you talk about uh you know you were talking about closing ranks and it was found uh south carolina uh the state did a a report and found that police in South Carolina have fired their weapons uh, at 209 suspects in five years, but none were convicted. And uh, one of the former state prosecutors <laughs> said that we ruled these shootings were justified and we look at dozens and dozens of them. Well, and so it's all the way to the, to the top as well. I mean, that they protect officers, it seems to me, after reading this. Of course. I mean, that's why the bigger implications of a story like this, because it's always a tragedy on an individual level, but we want to think about, you know, what really caused this because well, the broader it, injustice, you know, like, of course it was one man making a bad decision, but why did this one man make this bad decision? Some would argue like myself, that there's a system in place, which is going to perpetuate making these bad decisions. Ultimately, you know, like Ferguson, Missouri, uh, and this uh, South Charleston, or allowing uh, them North, to have North, it, North, chalking them up as a mistake. Of course, in North Charleston, South Carolina, there's a lot of disturbing trends in in these cities where it seems systematic. You've got a large popul part of the population that's black in uh, North Charleston, I believe, fifty percent, and the police force is twenty percent black. In uh, Ferguson, Missouri, the police force was ten percent black, and the community's eighty percent black. So you don't really have an accurate ethnic representation of the police force in the community. So there's a lot of distrust there. So it's kind of a weird situation because it's like, well, if we admit that, then we're admitting racism and we're saying the solution is a racist solution. You know, we need to have ethnically represented uh, officers in each community. So it's kind of an interesting dilemma because it seems systematic, but if it is, what's the solution? You know, how can we really overhaul the system in a way where it's going to prevent things like this from happening? Because it's happening so regularly. Body cameras are a start. Keep holding people accountable is a start. You know, I think that is the way to go. My thing is, is like you said, what's going to happen is, is are the body cameras going to all of a sudden malfunction during situations of high intensity where life and death decisions are being made? Or in this case, are they just going to be turned off or sabotaged some way? Because this didn't seem, after watching the video, like it was a hostile situation. It just seemed like the guy was running away, and he just well, you, you have the dash cam video which we've seen, which is the guy running away. running away, and then you have the video of him running away and getting shot. They say there's like you talked about uh, before when we we talked about this that he got shot with a, a taser allegedly and there's some sort of struggle but we've no evidence of deadly force or he was trying to attack the officer the officer didn't have any wounds and this was the second disturbing trend was that it looked like there was pretty much systematic cover-up and disregard for human life when he called it in he said he tried to take my taser picked up his taser and moved it closer to the body you know put handcuffs on the guys, he's bleeding to death after he shot him multiple times. See, I'd like to Bare, barely, barely trying to perform CPR. It's just things like that where it seems so systematic. Like this is instinctive. Like commonplace. This is just instinctive behavior. This is normal. 
This isn't like spur of the moment somebody doesn't know what to do and they're just freaking out having bad decision making. It's systematic. That's why this officer maybe shouldn't even been in this position in the first place. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there was multiple incidents of people reporting him of tasering them before. Oh, really? Yeah, there's multiple incidents. One involved uh, <laughs> he arrested the wrong person. Uh, they went to arrest this guy's brother at a house and the brother was five foot five and his older brother six foot five answered the door and the officer Schlager essentially forced his way into the house tasered the guy uh you know everyone was freaking out saying you're arresting the wrong guy he has tasered this innocent guy he asked what's going on they dropped the charges they do an internal investigation and of course the charges are dropped because everybody who says anything that goes against what the police department once represented they don't include that in the report right you know it's like tell us what happened and we'll write down what we feel like writing down so what you're saying is is, is two part like you mentioned uh, you know a little bit about race and about you know some kind of uh, disparity uh, between the communities and the police force that polices them or keeps them safe protects yeah. them, protects and serves them um, they're supposed to protect and serve. But they do police. I mean, that's, that's what they do yeah. mostly. Well, I think the problem most people have is you have this idea in your head of the police as being somebody that protects and serves. That's really your idea of them when you're growing up is, you know, they're supposed to be like, people are looking out for you. They're going after the bad guys. In reality, they're responsive. They don't stop crime from happening. Right. They respond to crime as it's happening. So they're a responsive unit of enforcement. And because of that... They're not really stopping anything bad from happening. They're waiting for bad things to happen and then reacting. So I think that's a big thing the police needs to take on. Taking on roles where they're looking more at preventative crime instead of reactive crime. Because all the money is to be made in reacting to it. That's where you put people in jail. There's an investigation. There's people surrounding the crime scene. There's a, a, there's a, a trial. There's people being held in prison for long periods of time. There's this. There's that. Well, if you're taking the steps that need to be taken place to make the community safer so that there's less robberies, so there aren't drug laws that make people make irrational decisions for money, then you're doing things that are in the long run going to make everyone safer. But it's not necessarily going to make the police more money. So I think that's a big problem we're seeing more and more in communities is that the police have taken on this type of almost profit uh, Profit-driven profit -driven model. I mean, we saw it in Ferguson, well, yeah, Missouri, I mean, the police report proven, Mayor right? Holder that literally they were proud of the fact that they were making tons of money by just shaking the citizens down for everything, ticketing them to death and charging them fines on the tickets. So a lot of law enforcement, it seems, has gone in that direction where we're using seizure laws, we're ticketing excessively, we're doing everything we can for something that's supposed to be about protecting and serving to operate as a profit-driven bureaucracy it seems kind of ludicrous I, I don't know how we we got this far down the street you know yeah wow um I, i'm not i'm not sure how how we got down that street i, I do know that you know the for-profit prison systems is a big big business and they actually guarantee their capacity to the states that they operate in like we're going to guarantee that we're going to be 98% capacity over the next five years uh, to XYZ state that we uh, you know have our prisons in this that and the other and so yeah I mean why wouldn't it uh, start at the bottom 
It's big business. Why would it start at the bottom? It started traffic tickets. No, it's and it, then traffic tickets get the boots. It's big and then business. The boots go to the get towed, and then you get towed, and then you can't get your car out. I, uh, and I wanted to ask you a question about this because uh, it's it's really interesting to me. What do you think about the fact that I mean the reason Walter Scott ran for anybody's uh, just information? It's just a theory, but they're pretty sure it is. He's been arrested before multiple times for being back in it on child support payments. Yeah. Tens of thousands of dollars, right. thousands of dollars, and basically he's been in jail for a day or two. Right. So this had happened to him twice before. They said he was eighteen thousand behind, and he thought a warrant was out for his arrest. Why do you think he felt the need to run for his life, essentially, for the risk of going to jail for a day? Like, like, what do you think that that shows about like uh, a black man's fear of the police? That he's willing, he's willing to run for his life to not have to deal with that incident. Again, that's that's a that's a crazy that's a crazy question because like, is jail that bad or is the dealing with the police that bad at that point? Dealing with in general, they say he drove drove extra home. His brother said he drove this extra long way to avoid the police because he didn't want to get arrested again uh-huh. for dealing with the child support. You know, it's like right. when, when, guess what? When you you owe fifteen grand and you're broke, you ain't making five hundred dollar a month payments. Right. You ain't putting money to that. You might not feel you owe the money, you, right or wrong. I'm just saying there's a lot of reasons why. So it's a question now of like, okay, if this person's breaking the law, why do they feel that this is like something that they need to fear for their life from? Like if you were a, a white gentleman, would you fear for your life in the same situation? Would you be avoiding the police in the same situation? Maybe you would if it was a very, very poor neighborhood or something like that. It might be a class thing more than it is a race thing. Well, that's exactly the poor, the it. Poor, the poor being afraid of authority, you know? And unfortunately, minorities have a long history of being uh, socially and economically, you know, basically pushed down into these communities. So it might have something more to do with that. What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% certain it has to do with that. Uh, you know, the poor and disenfranchised get taken advantage of and... Um, picked upon and nickel and dimed for this, that, and the other. Uh, you know, it's big business to um, have somebody uh, miss a court date and charge them more <laughs> and for missing that court date and then, uh, you know, tack on a little bit here, tack on a little bit there. They can't pay. They can't pay. You know, being poor is expensive. You know what I'm saying? Fines for being unable to pay fines. Fines for yeah, being unable to pay that fines. Was, that was, again, with uh, Eric Holder, expose of Ferguson. There was the lady who had, I think it was like $150 in fines. She paid $500 and she still owed $500. Right, exactly. A year exactly. later. So yeah, that's, that's what I mean. So the poor is getting shaken down because they really don't have any voice, especially when you have this closed off um, fraternity of, of officers who will back each other up who will concoct stories. They get a couple of days, you know, 10 hours to be able to talk to other officers about like incidents, to be able to uh, contrive some of these stories. And and that's just not me talking. That was an uh, ex-police officer uh, who uh, I read an article and I can't remember exactly who it is. And I'm sorry for bringing it up and and not citing it, but he was talking about how um, it's commonplace that they can get together before the inter- interview of, uh, you know, whatever internal affairs or whatever is going on, and they can, um, you know, start to, you know, manipulate 
the truth a little bit to concoct a story to make it look like the use of deadly force was justified. And we see too many instances of unarmed people getting killed to just say that this is uh, that it's always a um, life and death situation. There's no possible way that you can watch some of these videos and the way that the officers act in these videos and not say that they are doing it with some sort of malice and some sort of just disregard for the life that they are taking. I mean, honestly, they assess the situation, use your training a little bit. I mean, have you, what kind of training are they receiving if they're every time they get into a high tense pressure situation, they feel the need that they need to kill somebody? You know, we, we also want to look at it from the side of the officers because we do give them leeway for this reason well, because exactly. we understand that it's one of the most difficult jobs in the That's world. That's why I'm going it, back it, to talk about funny. training. Let's it, talk about yeah. the fundamentals I, that I, you're taught. I just wanted to point out it's, that it's a common misconception people make that and a police love to make it and defenders of police love to make it. They make the wrong argument. They always say this is the most dangerous job in the world. It's not even in the top 10 most dangerous jobs. It really isn't. Now, it's in the top 10 most difficult jobs. It might be the most difficult job to do. You're constantly dealing with the worst oh, type of people possible. The public. So, like, like we do want to give credit to, 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 to officers where it's due. You're doing an impossible job. You know, you really are because you're being asked to do things that you know are morally and ethically wrong, but you're forced to uphold the letter of the law. And in most situations, that might not be the right thing to do. But if you're following the letter of the law nowadays, the way everything's documented and videotaped, you're kind of forced to, you know? It's like anybody always knows that story of when they had a friend when they were in high school and they got caught drinking beer or this or that by a cop. And, you know, this is back in the day. If there, there's no camera, there was no body cam or anything like that, there was no camera on the car, a lot of times you'd hear the story and the cop would be like, hey, pour this out, get out of here, you know? Any, so, any time there was a video camera, it was like, hey, you know, like, I wish I could help you out here, kids, you know, this and that, but, you know, it's on camera. So you can't really able to massage the situation depending on what you feel is right. You kind of just have to force to always follow the letter of the law. So it's a double-edged sword is what you're saying. Like, if you want them to follow the law in one instance, then they have to follow the law in all instances. Exactly. These body cameras and video cameras everywhere, they're great. They're going to be full transparency. But now we're saying, okay... Well, there's well, full there, transparency. Now there's no discretion. Now there's no discretion, you know, because we've got full evidence of you at all times with everything you're doing. So if there's any mistake, you didn't follow protocol, we can go back look at the video and hold you responsible. Yeah. So there's a way that technology cuts both ways. And I think it does in all instances. I mean, everything that you talk about with technology, with the internet, the open freedom that communicate, well, that communicate is easily tapped into now, right? So there's... Everything that, that, that technology touches, there's a good and there's a bad. You know, people are uh, less likely to uh, learn something new or retain information because your phone uh, can keep all of the numbers in it. So how, when was the last time you memorized like a telephone or anything like that? So this is a little bit off topic. So let's swing it back to the, uh, to the cops. But I like what you're, where you're going with it when you're talking about, um, you know, uh, if you want to be held, you want to be held accountable, then you have to be held accountable on all things. But I think that that unfortunately maybe our lack of voice uh, as these police officers are becoming more militarized and more uh, aggressive in nature and less um, about being part of the community and being more about uh, being over the community 
um, that they uh, that we've created this situation to bring about these cameras, and now both sides kind of lose a little bit of that freedom to discern and make decisions that is part of the human condition, right? I mean, it's part of our nature is to be able to do that, to evaluate situations, and we do it very, very well, and then make decisions based on that situation, the context and situation. We can look at something, we can divvy it up, and we can say, okay, we need to make this decision, and that's not always the right decision. So we're talking about the people that make the wrong decisions, right? Those are the people who are bringing about this situation. There are people out there that make the right decisions and do the right things, but it's part of the it's it's been part of the course now. It's too much of the norm. It's too much of like what you said about uh, your brother and answering the question like which, which one story. But which here's story? here's a strange thing. If we want to be completely honest, shootings have gone down. Incidents of police brutality have gone down for the last 30, 40 years. They've all been trending down. Things are actually getting safer. Yet it feels more dangerous. And if you talk to people who are minorities who live in poor communities, they'll tell you they're just as afraid as they've always been. So now you're talking about something systematic, where there's like literally a culture of fear, of divide between authority, so between, between authority and populace. When, you know, like, who's the police? We are the police. It's supposed to be your friends and neighbors. Well, that's what I just said, right? It's like they've gone away from being part of the community, and now they like rule over a community, and they feel like... Um, so the big thing is that they're disconnected. So you think that the like, connection between the police officers and the society could make uh, this rift go away? I just think there needs to be a reevaluation of the role we kind of expect police to be playing. Like, when you think back, you know, we grew up in a different time, I guess, but when I was a kid, I had this idea of, you know, when my parents and grandparents were growing up, there was a police officer on a beat, a beat officer. Like, I visualized it in my head. There was a cop who was on a horse, or he just walked in the neighborhood. <laughs> he, he walked around. Like, and, and this really used to happen. Apparently, yeah. you know what I mean. Like, and he'd stop. How's it going, Jill? Oh, you know, the shop stopping here for your cup well, of yeah, coffee. Yeah, there was a lot less people. There was a lot less people, but I'm just saying, like, I had that idea in my head of like the cop was just like a, he was one of, of, of the, somebody in the community. He he hung out. He said hi to people. People don't really know a cop while he's on the job. Nobody wants to know him while he's on the job. <laughs> they don't want to deal with them for the most part. Usually, so you think that the problem is the way they interact with the public? There's a perception. It might not even be the way the cop interacts. It's just the perception of, the, of them is so fearful. You're expecting them. Nothing good can come of me interacting. By our interaction, yeah. It's you know, going to lead to something. You're, you're going to be looking. Cause I'm, we, not, I'm we, not expecting We all break the law all the time. They, they say the average person breaks the law 100 times a year or more in multiple ways. Like you don't even know it from jaywalking to littering to this to that. People are breaking, speeding. People are breaking the law all the time, whether they know it or not. It's just whether or not a cop's there around to notice it and chooses to care. So most people's perception is, why would I want to put myself in a situation where I'm going to allow a person who's looking for faults to take advantage of any I have? And then it goes back to the money thing, because if the cops think, and the first thing is, my job is to gain revenue for the city that I'm working for, then they're first inclination is going to be, well, how can I cite this person or find some fault in them to be able to take them to, uh, to jail? And the system traps them in that. Because now and do you think people realize that or people perceive it that way? And so that's the way that they, that's why they don't interact because they're like, well, this guy's just looking to, to bust me because I know it's a big money making racket. It's very relative to the, the city. I think, I think when you're in a small town, maybe people do know the cop. On a lot more smaller course, level, yeah, I think you know so. what I mean. When you're in a big city, like we're in San Diego, it's not the hugest, but it's definitely a big enough city. You know, cops are driving everywhere. 
usually when they're interacting with people, it's only after something bad's happened. They don't have time to interact with the community and have a real relationship with people, you know, because like you said, their job is to react to bad things that have already happened and that are going to make them money in the long run. They're making bureaucratic decisions of importance about what they're doing you know, funding for. So, I mean, the way the, the police is run is as a business. That's why it's, just, it's so systematic that we need to overhaul our way of thinking. It's kind of like there's certain areas of life we should all be in agreement that don't need to be profit-based. Healthcare, policing, things like that. Like, we, we don't need to be trying to make profit on that. That kind of needs to be an area where we accept the loss. But we're not willing to do that. And because of that, we just get insane laws and applications of laws. I mean... The seizure laws I've been hearing about in the Midwest are crazy. I don't know if you're up on this, but pretty much anybody who's caught with, like, they'll pull you over for any reason in, like, Kansas or Oklahoma or North Dakota. And they'll pull you over and say they, you know, they smelled marijuana or something. Search your car. Even if they find nothing, they might say, hey, well, we're going to take you to jail. We think you're smuggling drugs. Or you can agree to release your car to us and we'll let you go. <laughs> and most of the time, or, or they'll have a bunch of cash on it, they might have a few thousand dollars, and they can't explain, you know, where it came from. They don't have a, a receipt, a bank receipt for it. You know, they'll say, oh, it's for this or that. Oh, yeah, it's drug money. You know, we're either going to arrest you or you're going to, you know, sign that over to us. And they take that money and they invest it in the police department. So it's literally like old school mafioso style where you're extorting people at random and auctioning off their cars for profit. That's systematic abuse right there. It's, just, it's that type of behavior where it's like if it wasn't personified in what the identity of the organization was, why would it be happening? Well, here's the other question, though. I mean, they don't profit in the death of, of individuals. So, you know, but, they, but the tie-in to what you were talking about is, is that this guy – they definitely don't profit in the death. This but, guy, but, but Officer they, they profit Slager, in the arrest. They this, profit in the arrest. But this guy, Officer Slager, he he shot he shot the guy right from 15 feet away in the back. He shot him eight times, and then shot he, at him eight times. Right? I don't think he hit him eight, but he shot at him eight. Right. Yeah. So he shot at him eight times, and he the guy goes down, and he plants a fucking taser on. Yeah, he moved the taser. He plant. Yeah, he picks it up. He plants he, it. He moved it so that way he could be like, oh, we were struggling for the taser, and then I had to shoot him. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. not not we were struggling for the taser, and then he ran away, and I shot him. Right. Yeah. So he literally, and, and this is where I'm getting at. It's so like you were talking about as a systematic. Well, it has to be right to be so nonchalant and not even calling. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't perform CPR on the guy. No, they they, 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 they always do. But I always find it interesting that after like a police guy shoots you four or five times, they handcuff you. Like you're like you're bleeding to death on the ground usually, and their concern is like they need to secure you. It could be dangerous. It's like you're dying. You're literally like on the ground dying. You don't have any weapon, and they're like, we need to handcuff you. Mm -hmm. Once again, is it to protect and serve? Who are we? They're protecting and serving themselves. Yep. You know. Yep. You know if they if they shot you, at at least the co the cop who accidentally shot the dude in the parking uh, lot. I don't think he handcuffed him after he shot him. That guy, when he pulled him over for the traffic stop for not wearing a seatbelt. Right. I don't think he immediately handcuffed him. I hope he didn't. But then again, he only, he only shot him once in the leg instead of five times. There you go. Well, yeah. I mean, I but I think the biggest question about this is is really about the about the the lying and the cover up and the deceit and the and the and their actions outside of what their their duties are to 
the people and acting behind this cloak of we are heroes and everything that we do is shiny and bright and great and to 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 question us and to question our tactics and our motives is sacrosanct basically sacrilegious. well well put you know i i think it's tough because it's almost not the officer's fault the way like our system works it seems like they make you put everything in such black and white terms that it's impossible for the officers to acknowledge that it's gray. So if they admit fallibility, then it risks compromising the entire organization. If they say there's corruption here, there's officers cover up there, we need to fix this, then in their eyes, and maybe they're right, it risks compromising the integrity of the public's view of the organization. The public might lose complete faith in it because the public Only for a little while because the public expects it though the public expects it to be black and white like that they don't really want to acknowledge that there's a lot more gray in life and the way things well, are done obviously or there wouldn't you know? be such a support uh, for the police officer's side look i'm not blaming wholeheartedly the police officers on, at all but in order to fix the problem both sides have to change when you talk about the division between society and communities and the police officers both sides needs to start to take a more moderate right. stance and start to understand that there's faults in both sides. Yes, there are dangerous individuals in our community with whom need to be policed on a more uh, tight basis. Okay, we understand that. Okay, they, we understand that there is racism and uh, corruption and uh, co coercion and collusion that go on in our system. Yes, okay, now let's fix it. Right. So, yep. but that's the problem is that when you take a hardline stance like uh, like the NYPD does very often, and just will not acknowledge and turns their back on the mayor and this that and the other, then there's no way that that systematic racism, corruption, um, whatever you want to call it within that organization will never change unless there is a blatant and a uh, a working thought process that you know make sure that uh is that looks at the organization itself with a, a critical eye my goodness man <laughs> that's a tough one to spit out there <laughs> yeah lost my words there for a second but it happens but you know what i'm saying they have to look at the organization from uh, objectively and say yes we have a problem here yes yeah, I, I mean it's cliche but change comes from within so in order to fix the problem You've got to be able to acknowledge it. So, you know, when you get these organizations, usually governmental, acting in denial of obvious problems, that's what's most infuriating about it, I think, is that, well, we know it's not going to get fixed then, because if we can't admit it's a problem, we can't ever do anything about it. And right. we're always going to say, it's not a problem, it's just this one individual, it's just this one case, you know, okay, we got him in jail, it's all it's all taken care of. Yeah. You know, it, it's very, very... Uh, but it stems, it's, it's very anecdotal. They try to make everything an anecdote. Right. And, you know, but there's life not. and death situations on, on the line here. I mean, you talk about um, the individual who was on death row for 30 years uh, in Louisiana who just got out. He was the longest prisoner to ever be released on death row after they found that he uh, hadn't, uh, hadn't killed someone. And all they needed to do was test the gun. And he would have been off back then. He spent 30 years in prison on death row. And like you said, it's systematic. There's a, there's a problem here, and it goes back 30 years, obviously, that this problem has been going on. And now, you know, we have over 2 million people incarcerated in this country based on a system that is making money. 
You always chase the badge for the money. I'm sorry. Yeah. It, it just goes that way. And, 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 and Ferguson is case in point that this was a shakedown operation. And I remember law enforcement, once again, like we talked about, protect and serve. When they incarcerate you, it's not to rehabilitate you. It's to punish you. Exactly. You know, it's to punish you. And nobody wants to be in jail. It's terrible. You make the best of it. It's terrible. But it's not to rehabilitate you. So that's kind of like the fallacy of it is that we're supposed to try to fix you by doing something. By putting to, you in a cage. We're going to fix you by basically torturing you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I understand the need and the human desire to want to punish people, but that's like incarcerating people without rehabilitating them. That's only profit driven because then they're going to end up right back in prison. Of course. The taxpayer is perpetually going to keep this person alive and in their service until they're dead in exactly. a cage somewhere. So it's figuring out ways we can break the systematic cycle everywhere like you talked about, from the prisons to the police officers to the community too, because it's, yes. it's, it's on the community too, to a degree, to reach out. And I mean, we can't say like, oh, it's 100%, you know, anybody's fault, but the community too also needs to be more open with the police. And I mean, you've seen it everywhere. There's instinctive fear that the police are always going to take advantage of any little slip up they can and not use that discretion that they should and show that, hey, they're people just like us and they can respect situations. Because everybody's a story, too, of a friend who did something wrong, like I talked about, and that cop poured out the beer instead of took taking them into jail when they were 17 or something like that. This isn't a story about me, ladies and gentlemen, by the way. <laughs> but, uh, that I mean, those stories do happen, and they humanize the police, and they show that, you know, when we do have a more open relationship with each other, there's mutual respect things are taken care of better. But we need to first build an environment where people aren't so inherently afraid of the police. And that's gonna be really difficult in minority and economically poor communities, I think. So I'm, I'm not sure how we can fix that problem first. Because you know, in major cities, there might be some solutions, but it's in these towns like Ferguson and North Charleston. Well, it's the fear problem. The fear problem has to go away first. Without the fear, then people are more open, and then communities begin to police themselves. You see what I'm saying? But once you have that fear, then there's no openness because people are afraid of themselves being caught up in the system. And once you're in the system, you're in the system, like you just said. That's just the way it is. Now you're you're, you're branded something. Um, you know, you have a, a record that started. You have some things that that they are hard to overcome, and then to assimilate back into the community. I mean. You know, you know how messed up kids are. I mean, that are found in like slave situations or whatever. Like, grow like this person lived in a basement for twelve years. Like, yeah. you think that person assimilated well? I don't think so. I don't think so. So, I don't think the person that's going to jail for twelve years or whatever is going to assimilate back into the community very well either. And then you have no hope, and these and you have in these oppressed societies, uh, in these oppressed communities where there's not very the lack of education. Um, now for generations, people live with no hope. They have a lot of family members that were, uh, uh, led, uh, you know, generations before them that are incarcerated. So they see these all the time and it's it almost happens. a culture it's of a fear. Cycle. It's a yeah. culture of fear and yeah. it's a culture of no hope. And so when there's no hope, people just give up. It's, it's unfortunate. And everybody says, yeah, you should pull yourself by your bootstraps. And this is the way that America is and blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is, is that what really happens is, is that people give up. People, they try really hard for a little while, and then everyone around them is shit, 
and everything that they live in isn't is isn't what and they see on TV and they're always living like they want something that they don't have and unfortunately it either drives them to crime it drives them to gangs or it drives them to prison and that's just the way it is right now and now they live in fear and oppression from the police who are living and 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 and, and in the community but policing a community with such uh, brutality and lack of uh, discrimination in regards to their actions because they are told to perpetuate the system to make money. You're spot on. I, I, I can't agree with you enough. I mean, it just seems like it's institutional level corruption. And the problem is, I feel like in America we have this head in the sand thing where, you know, we choose just to. Don't want to recognize we, it. we just we just want we'd rather ignore a problem than acknowledge it because to acknowledge it means we have to deal with it. That's why we have things like the war on drug, the prison population. We're just going to keep going down the same path we're going down because to do something else that would require so much work and so much hard thinking and right. it'd be painful and tough. Yet the alternative is that it could destroy us. Well, in the eighties and nineties, they did a really, 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 really good job of making the war on drugs against crack. They did. And branding that against poverty. So it's a war on poverty, but it's not a war on poverty in the way that we would like a war on poverty. It's the opposite way. that they, It's a, literally a war on the impoverished. You know, it was definitely a way to... Uh... I mean, you watch tanks rolling in Compton, man. Like, they, like, broke in doors and, like, ran through buildings and stuff with these, like, armored vehicles. And so and you're telling me that, like... This isn't a systematic corruption that's been going on for a long time. Of course it has. Is there violence in the communities? Yes, we know that there's gang violence. We know that there's drug violence. We know that there's these black market things that go on. But what we're saying is that if you interact in a much better way and, and, and reduce the fear and the, uh, the lack of compassion between the two parties – then it, it would be a better way to, to resolve some of these problems is what we're talking about. Yeah, I don't know if there is a realistic solution just because, like I said, it's so institutional. Oh, yeah, for you sure. You know, you really are talking about, like, the institution of the courts, the prisons, law enforcement on multiple levels, uh, you know, like civilian government, community government. There's so much that needs to get taken into account to address a problem like this. I think that's why we always get caught up in individual stories. You know, this will be a big story in the news. And nothing will happen. Think about this. This guy, this guy will probably go to jail for life. Nothing will happen in the greater scheme of things to any of the institutions. And then there will be another story in three months. But, and people can get upset again. And they'll focus on this one guy and this one but, tragedy. And nothing ever changes. But here's the great thing. I think Ferguson was the start. I think it was unfortunate that the, the situation escalated into violence and the, into burning down buildings and this, that, and the other. But when people have no hope and are backed in, in a corner, the last thing that you do is you fight and you fight back. And if you feel like the injustice – was uh, justified, uh, or if it wasn't injustice at all. We do know that a, bl uh, a black kid was killed without any weapons. So whether you think that that was justified, uh, the police officer was- It was preventable, right? we, we know this. Now, whether, or not, whether or not that was a criminal or a good or bad person that got killed, that was a preventable death. That death did not need to happen. I agree with that, uh, but here's the deal. So you had a federal investigation. You find out that this stuff's going on. They do the report. They release the report. So there's a start. There's a chink in the armor. That's a crack, right? So now you can start to say, man, this happened in, in Cleveland when they, when, they, when they shot that kid, right? That's where they shot him, right? The 12-year-old? Cleveland, yeah. Um, and, uh, was, that, was that the one in the grocery store or the Kmart or whatever? With no, the it was gun? the one outside, and he was, and he was wielding the, uh, the weapon. 
Oh. And, he, and they rolled up on him. And yeah, they just shot the They didn't even give him like two seconds warning. They just like instantly pulled up and shot him. Yeah, just blasted him. And then he tackled his sister. Yeah. And so these are the, th- the type of situations that we're talking about here. I mean, this is unconscionable the, the way these people are, ha- are acting. And they're not – what is up with the training of these officers? But like you said, it has to be some kind of – mentality that's rampant in the organization to be able to act this way in such with such callousness right yeah well i mean you're forced into that approach like i said if we take the officer's perspective everyone's a threat everyone's a threat and the way people treat you all day because of that fear makes you feel makes threat. it threatened right you know, like, so this it, whole situation it's, it's tough for us to put ourselves escalates in, the actual threat yeah it's tough to put yourself in an officer's shoes but you kind of understand that second where the second you kind of lose your grip that's the second you're putting your life at risk. Right. That's the second so you're, you're letting people take advantage of right. your, you know, your carefree attitude. You need to very hold yourself tightly depending on the situation. Not everybody works in a safe area. So really, like I said when I talked about officers before, I think they have the most difficult job. Not the most dangerous, but it might be the most difficult job. So for me at least, I think that's where we can start is just – reanalyzing what we want our police officers to do, who we're hiring, our hiring practices, actually having some realistic investigations. I mean, like I said, this guy had multiple incidents with tasering people where, you know, basically the internal investigations were just, you know, stamp work, rubber rubber stamp work, saying they did it so they could say they did it without actually looking into it and doing anything about it. Because if they did, this guy wouldn't have have had a job still. And this death would have been prevented. Mm-hmm. Once again, it was a preventable death. Just like with Michael Brown. If the system was doing its job properly, these people wouldn't be in this position and acting in this way in the first place. So I think that's where we need to start first and foremost. Our hiring practices, you know, implementation of what officers are doing with their time and what they're prioritizing. A lot of cities, for example, Santa Cruz, uh, most notably, they made uh, marijuana their lowest priority possible. So that it, it was the lowest possible thing. If anything else important was going on, you know, like uh, some old lady at a cat in her tree and a cop was pulling over some, some kid for smoking weed or something, he had to go help the old lady. So it's kind of like... Yeah, but like I said earlier in my conversation with you is that I said that people have done a good job of this war on drugs is looking like it, it, it's for the poor people and, and now they're also labeled as this is where all the violence happens. And so now drugs fall into that same equation of violence and drugs. It's a cycle. Together. It's a cycle. And so it, it, it's you have to change the perception of that. It's like, okay, from, you, you, you want to make poor people not afraid of the police? Give them money, right? If they were making money in a way that wasn't illegal, they'd have nothing to be afraid of. But their only option outside of a few people's ability who have either you know incredible luck or incredible athletic ability or musical ability. Most poor people are always going to be poor. That's the truth yeah. when you look at the statistics. So they're in a position where their only recourse to gain money quickly, most people, is to do something illegal, drugs. So you've created that trap where most people are going to want to do that. That's what our culture is based on, getting ahead, making money. And what's, what's involved with drugs? Violence. So now the police have recourse to say, hey, there's violence going on. We need to handle this. And the system just perpetuates itself. Yep. So it is truly one of those monumental problems to take on. So the first thing we can do is at least get people to admit it is a problem. Because then, well, we, can, I think then we can have this conversation, too. right? I think, I think this story helps too. I think these these 
couple days that after before we this video surfaced where these people are talking you know the the police spokesperson uh spencer Pryor said that the man ran on foot and the officer deployed his taser and that didn't work and then the two fought over the device and then scott tried to use um the taser the taser yeah. and then the officer shot and that was the story and then this video comes out and the guy's clearly running away and he blasts him from eight like 15 feet and so this shows and exposes how easy it is for them to paint a picture and deliver it to the public, spoon feed it through the media, through these channels who they have connections with already. And so this coupled with Ferguson, I think really starts to, to strike the nerve of the, the problem and the, and the institutionalization as you speak about and, and talk about that this institutionalism does run rampant and it's Ferguson. There's many Ferguson's. Yeah. Many there, Ferguson's. There's hundreds, if not thousands of Ferguson's. Exactly. And we just need to stay vigilant in having this as a conversation. It's sad and depressing almost that, you know, we need these stories to be popping up to have this conversation. It seems like it should be common sense. But, uh, you would think, you know, until, until it is, it's important that, you know, we, we keep having these debates and pushing this stuff forward. And I'll, I'll kind of just try to end on that note and say I really think that, uh, you know, just getting the police themselves to acknowledge it's a problem, it's a scary thing, like you said. It might get bad for a minute, but it'll get better if they can just admit that. You know, admit that at an institutional level, they, they need to change what they're doing so that the community and the officers don't have this fear. Right. And whether or not that's going to immediately change anything, it might at least immediately change our perception of the situation and what we need to do about it. Exactly. And I agree with you. I think that's the, the number one uh, key factor here is really uh, to get both sides to analyze themselves a little bit, uh, to take a little bit of ownership in the situation and uh, to find a way to come together and move forward. So I am with you as far as what uh, to do about this. Unfortunately, as we wait to uh, for people to sort it out, people end up dead. That's just the way it is right now. It's a crazy world we're living in, Matt. I don't know what I'd do uh, if <laughs> that I was ever in that situation. Uh, you know, it's a scary, scary thought. Uh, so we'll just say that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important story. Keep your eyes on what's going to happen. Hopefully we don't have to have too many more of these incidents to, uh, you know, really get some change in, in how these institutions are run. But we appreciate the time as always, ladies and gentlemen. Matt, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on this with me. Uh, it's been a blast, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, it's been a good night. See ya. Peace out.